Today on Ag News Daily. You know, the values of those larger conglomerates in order to be successful, you know, efficiency is part of that. And sometimes while there are, you know, some sustainable practices, there aren't necessarily regenerative practices. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Ag News Daily podcast, and I'm Ashton Carr, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how's your Friday looking? Uh, Busy, Ashton. I tell you what, there's a lot going on today. There certainly is. And one thing that's going on down here in Texas is the canceling of the 2020 or not the 2020, but the 2021 Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. And I'm very, very sad about it because it's really, I think, one of the first big Texas shows other than State Fair that got canceled. And it's, you know, in 2021, but it is in early 2021 and like January, February. And I'm very upset because the show's only been canceled one other time. And that was during World War II in 1943. So I'm really upset to hear that Fort Worth got canceled, but honestly, really not surprised. Yeah, I suppose probably not. But I tell you what, Ashton, there's another big news going on right now. Of course, we've got the WASDE report out today, which we'll talk about later on. But we also have a hurricane that we are continuing to watch and has really uh, shook up some different industries. That's for sure. Yeah, I was also watching that. And I I think it's the third, I believe, tropical storm, hurricane, what have you, that's really hitting the Gulf this season. And so really upsetting, you know, for those folks that are down there that are going to be affected and really upsetting in terms of commodity movement and transportation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That Gulf of Mexico area is a huge area with ports and other um agricultural production, but also oil production. And we saw that there's about 80% of all offshore oil output in that area of the Gulf of Mexico is halted until further notice until we do see Hurricane Delta hit and see, you know, what that damage is going to be. It's a danger for folks on oil rigs. They pulled workers off of platforms. And I, gosh, I, I wish I could remember the statistic. I heard it on the radio this morning about the amount of damage that is intended to happen. And that's all for agricultural and just, you know, normal losses. It was in the millions, but I can't remember what that figure is for the life of me. But it, it was a large, large number. Well, Delaney, speaking of numbers, do you want to kick off our WASD conversation? Do you have those numbers in front of you? I certainly do, Ashton. And, you know, I think this report, as we had alluded to, was pretty friendly for all commodities except for perhaps wheat. Uh, The big takeaways here were soybean stockpiles declined more than expected by analysts. We saw beans react and head higher, then fell back for some profit-taking, but did end the day higher. Those uh, ending stocks, as I mentioned, though, declined to 290 million bushels, which is a 170 million bushel decline from September. So like I said, that was slightly above pre-report estimates. So that was very bullish for the markets. On the corn side of things, they also saw lower ending stocks. They were dropped 258 million bushels to a 1.995 billion bushel carryover. 
And with lower beginning stocks, we also saw USDA lower corn ending stocks for 2020, 2021. And the I guess the big surprise or the one thing that, you know, we didn't see USDA adjust that maybe they should have was export numbers. We didn't see them touch corn and soybean exports. Those were left unchanged. But we also then on the wheat side of things saw wheat stocks rise. Um, they increased the yield just, or the, excuse me, they lowered the yield just slightly to a 49.7 down from a 50.1 and beginning stocks were lowered. So a little bit of a mixed basket there for wheat. Um, but overall, really a pretty friendly report. And we saw the markets react uh, pretty favorably after just some initial reaction got out of the way. That is certainly some good news to hear on this Friday. And I have a little bit of news that I also would like to share. And it's concerning President Trump, who is vowing to continue using tariffs on China if he wins his reelection. Trump told Fox Business Network that his strategy of heavily taxing Chinese products has forced Beijing to make trade concessions and helped American farmers. Trump said record purchases of some ag products are evidence that his aggressive approach toward China is working. And he also said the tariffs have brought billions of dollars into the U.S. Treasury, and those funds have been used to support farmers. Trump also repeated his claim that the Chinese are paying the tariffs, although many economists have said that those funds have actually been paid by American consumers and other businesses. All right. And what does that mean long term? Do you have any ideas there, Ashton? No, it really doesn't say anything long term or, you know, it really doesn't even say anything about the the phase one trade deal or, or moving on with the trade deal. But he, President Trump, is is just vowing to continue using his aggressive approach with China if he were to be reelected next month. All right. Well, you know, speaking of elections, as I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, I had the opportunity to go see Secretary Purdue speak here in the state of Iowa. Really didn't have anything super exciting to share. He basically reiterated again that they were working at the USDA to provide grants for folks to change infrastructure around at the pump to allow more E15 usage nationwide. And we also had the opportunity to have a media gaggle. So folks asked him quite a few questions about, you know, the coincidental timing of this announcement ahead of the election, as well as a few other things. But I also saw this news hit the headlines this morning and wish that I would have had this story ahead of uh, that uh, press gaggle yesterday. But apparently, Secretary Purdue has been found to have violated the Hatch Act at a North Carolina food box event. And so he basically improperly injected political campaigning into a farmers to families food box event in North Carolina. And so then the next step was Secretary Purdue has to reimburse the government for the costs of his participation at this event. So little strange, didn't even know that that was an issue. Um, But I guess under this provision of law, Secretary Purdue can't use his official title as Secretary of Agriculture while engaging in political activity or his official position to advance or oppose candidates for his 
or for partisan political office. So essentially, it sounds like here, maybe said something about the Democratic Party or something that they were doing as a whole, or perhaps mentioned a comment about a specific Democratic leader and used that to campaign for President Trump or for the Republican Party. And under the Hatch Act, he is not allowed to do that. So he will be fined for that uh, that verbiage. But I, I find it a little ironic because yesterday at the press event, somebody asked him a question about, you know, providing more aid for farmers who have been impacted directly by COVID, as well as ethanol and other things. And he said, you know, that's, I, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get thrown to jail. And so I'm wondering now if maybe there was a little, uh, a little other message there I didn't read between the lines with at the time. That's really interesting. Was there any comment about how much this fine would really be? Uh, I didn't see that. Let me keep... Yeah, I'm I'm not seeing that. They just said for his cost, whatever his cost was associated in the event. So I don't know. That's probably a made up number, right? Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I think maybe that it was kind of just a maybe a slight slip up. I I don't know that it would be really I don't I don't see Purdue being Saying like, yeah, yeah, you you know, no, what I'm I mean, I agree <laughs> with what we exactly. I I have never seen him get overly political at any event that I've been to with him, and he's pushed pretty hard by reporters. I mean, I asked him a question yesterday, you know, do dealing a little bit more with the election and political mm, convergence ahead of the election, and he's very usually very uh very. What am I trying to say? He's usually a very good politician about giving a politician answer, working his way around the question you're asking, that kind of thing. So, Yeah, absolutely, Delaney. But I just have one other piece of news for today, and that is coming from France. France's Health and Environment Agency announced restrictions on the weed killer glyphosate in farming, but stopped just short of a full ban in the European Union's top agricultural producer due to a lack of non-chemical alternatives in some areas. The new rule set out by the ANSES on Friday, today, earlier today, are part of a push by the French government to phase out glyphosate by 2021 and reflect a global debate about the safety of the weed killer that was, of course, first developed by Bears Monsanto under the brand Roundup. And so I didn't realize for whatever reason, that this Roundup glyphosate discussion was going to go to a global level, Delaney? I am not really surprised. I mean, I think that issues like these, especially when it comes to chemicals or feed and nutrition, you know, anything that has to do with something that could eventually impact consumers, I think is going to be a, a conversation that continues to happen. Absolutely. You do make a good point there. But other than that, I'm all out of news for the day. What about you? Let's see. I think other than, yeah, those couple of things here, I am out as well. Uh, so let's take a look here at the sweet, or excuse me, at the sweet markets. Well, yes, the sweet markets, but at the commodity markets, Ashton. Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we saw, you know, ahead of the report, Grains were reacting favorably. 
initial gut reaction, they pulled back just slightly, but did end the day higher, much higher overall, including a new contract high in the December corn contract, adding eight cents the day to close at 3.95. The March up seven and a half to close at 4.02 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, November adding 15 and a half cents to close at 1.0. Excuse me, to close at 10.65 and a half. The January up 17 and three quarters cent to close at 10.65 and three quarters. Now, wheat was a little mixed here. We saw Chicago wheat pull back. We saw uh, hard red winter wheat pull forward on the day. So I'm going to talk here first Chicago wheat as the December contract, as I mentioned, pulled back one and a half cents to close at five. To close at 5.93 and three quarters, the March down a penny to close at 5.97 and three quarters. Livestock had some mixed trade today as well. The October live cattle contract up 17 and a half cents to close at 109.87. The December down two cents to close at 112.60. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract adding 20 cents to close at 138.25. The November down 92 and a half to close at 135.52. Lean hogs continue their upward momentum as the October contract added 77 and a half cents to close at 78.12. The December adding 27 and a half cents to close at 67.12 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the October contract adding 31 cents to close at 20.94. The November up 44 cents to close at 19.74. So without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our conversation for today's Friday episode. For today's Friday conversation, we are talking to a fourth generation turkey farmer, Heidi Diestel. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So we're certainly excited to have you on. I don't think that my time on Ag News Daily, we've actually had a turkey farmer. And so I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because it's definitely not a segment of animal agriculture that I'm familiar with. So with that being said, why don't you give us a little bit of a backstory about, you know, being a fourth generation turkey farmer and what you guys do? Yeah, totally. So you don't hear of turkey farmers too, too often, but um, we're, we're a few and mighty bunch. Um, our family business um, starts back well, really from like the 1920s, but we were formally started in business in um, 1949. So the company is over 70 years old and, um, you know, I'm fourth generation now. We are a vertically integrated, you know, poultry operation doing specifically turkey. Um, so we grow, um, process, we have like our own feed mill um, and we make turkey products. Um, so we make whole turkeys that you might have at Thanksgiving, all the way to deli meats and ground turkey that you can enjoy throughout the year. So Heidi, from my understanding, you aren't using one specific breed of turkey like a lot of other turkey producers and maybe, you know, the the big wigs kind of use one breed, but you guys aren't. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So we, um, we do things a bit different. Um, it's, it's, you know, kind of, we've coined the term, like what we call the diesel difference. And, and part of that is really to, you know, create really good quality food. Um, so we have 
um, you know, a variety of different attributes, whether that be no-antibiotics ever, certified organic, um, you know, heirloom and pasture-raised varietals. But then furthermore, once you kind of get past all of those key terms, we also, you know, breed specific, um, we grow our turkeys. And so, you know, it's not as like fun or maybe, you know, as um, sexy, if you will, like we, we don't have a Wagyu turkey per se, but in Turkey, the breed and the size is really important for the taste and the texture, especially like when you're talking about holiday turkeys. And the greatest example of this breed kind of size discussion is our petite turkey. So we have like proprietary genetics for petite turkey, which is fully matured at six to 10 pounds. So that turkey will grow at just as long as a big tom turkey that may be, you know, 28 pounds. But um, the, the petite bird will only ever be, you know, six to 10 pounds. So same amount of growing time out on the farm, same amount of space and what have you. But, um, the, you know, the size of that bird is fully matured at two totally different weight ranges. That's very interesting. And I love the way you put it that, you know, you don't have a, a sexy breed, like, having, you know, <laughs> wagyu beef, but that's, that's such a good point. And I really, you know, love the way that you worded that. But you guys are also doing some regenerative agriculture practices, and that's kind of a key word that we've really been discussing a lot here lately on the podcast, and I think just a lot in the industry as well. So why don't you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, well, you know, the family, I mean, you know, we've been doing this multi-generational and, um, you know, our great uncle Ernest, who really started farming he was very, yeah, he was very thoughtful in the manner in which he did. Of course, at that time, the family farmed, you know, back, this is back in like the 1920s, the family farmed, you know, apples and, you know, they had chickens and turkey. And so it was more, it was more of a holistic farm. And we've always grown up kind of with those roots. And so in modern agriculture really has gotten a bad rap um, because, you know, it's become very much a game of efficiency and a game of the few mighty few. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of large guys out there. And, you know, the values of those larger conglomerates in order to be successful, you know, efficiency is part of that. And sometimes while there are, you know, some sustainable practices, there aren't necessarily regenerative practices. And, um, you know, my brother, Jason, was really, you know, kind of that forward thinker, just like um, Uncle Ernest, in that he thought, you know, we have all of this organic waste. Um, we have, you know, fresh pine wood shavings that we put through our barns. We have the manure. We have, you know, cardboard that we use and paper that we use throughout our company. Um, we're in a very wooded area. Um, we're kind of in the, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And um, there's a lot of woody material and matter that we, you know, take out of um, our local forests. And we actually create a high quality humus compost. And so we have team members wholly dedicated to producing this compost. Um, but this is just like one of those practices that is, you know, taking organic matter that would normally end up maybe in a landfill somewhere and making a, a really high quality humus compost that's adding, you know, nutrient density um, and then soil, you know, really nutrient dense soil back to the earth, back to starting school gardens, kind of that more holistic vision of the future of farming, really. Yeah. And when we're talking about regenerative agriculture, I, th I think that a lot of those practices kind of have to do with you know, crop production and that kind of stuff. So hearing about the folks like you who are using regenerative ag, 
for for livestock or for for poultry, it's it's endearing, I suppose. So I really love hearing about how folks are really incorporating those practices. But you you said something that I kind of want to touch on, and that's your location. So are there a lot of other turkey farmers in your area? Or are they kind of spread out across the nation? Or is there really no specific location that's popular for poultry production? Oh, no, they're, they're definitely, I mean, they're, they're spread out across the country. Um, you know, it kind of depends what type of a program you're running, um, you know, for your poultry production. But there's a lot of um, poultry production, you know, especially turkeys like on the East Coast. Um, but here, you know, I guess, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you would necessarily pick this location, but <laughs> here we are. Um, it's where the family homesteaded. So it's, it's where we're at. Um, but it's a great, it's a really good climate. It's a very mellow climate. We are basically, um, like if you think of California, our farms in California are located, um, just in the, in the base of like the Sierra Nevada foothills. So we're not in the central Valley where it gets super, super hot. It still gets very hot where we are, but it's just a little bit further out. So we're not necessarily in the Valley and we're not on the coast of California. We're kind of nestled in those foothills. And so, yeah, it's a great area to be. Um, you know, the birds love, love the area. There's a lot of wild turkeys around us. Um, you know, but again, you know, I don't know that you would necessarily choose like today if you're like, oh, that's the perfect spot for a turkey farm. Not quite sure about that, but um, it's definitely an, a great, a great little corner of the world. Well, it sounds like you guys are running a very unique operation. And with that comes, you know, unique marketing. So how do you guys market the distal difference, as you put it, when you're marketing your turkey products? Yeah, so that's a that's a bit of an interesting thing. You know, I think um, we're talking about turkey, so it's kind of it can be dry <laughs> and it can be, um, yeah, it can just kind of be a little, um, uh, who's thought about their Turkey? Like, let's be honest, you know, in a common day, are you like, Oh, what brand of Turkey am I going to eat for lunch? Or, you know, it's not something that's super commonplace. And so, you know, we do things really differently, um, you know, from from the way that we approach our business, from our goals and the family's values that we we kind of, you know, infiltrate with all the families that work with and for us. And, you know, for us, when we go to market and we think about marketing, especially to our buyers, B2B or even B2C to to our customers, we want to be a little bit, you know, unique, but we also want to really stay true to the personality of the people here, of the personality of the family, of the brand, um, and to the, that transparency to the farm, which is utmost, you know, really important. And so we have some really quirky, fun sayings and like, because we only do turkey, you know, we say like things like, hey, give the other bird the bird, right? Like these things are just funny. They make you laugh. Um, but also it kind of breaks down those barriers to get into the heart of the matter, which is the diesel difference, which, you know, really brings home our, yeah, our agenda, you know, what we want to get done, what we want to accomplish and what we want to contribute into the poultry industry. Yeah. And Heidi, speaking of transparency and, and the distal difference, I want to touch on the health of your birds. And I am kicking myself because I almost forgot this conversation. So I'm so glad that you brought up, you know, the aspect of transparency on the farm. But you guys 
don't use any antibiotics, but you do use external probiotics, which is not something that I am familiar with back home. You know, we raise cattle and swine and we use antibiotics on our animals. So I'm just wondering what external probiotics you guys maybe not aren't using, but, but how that process works for your birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So yeah, we are a no antibiotic ever program. Um, that's kind of the fundamental that's like, you know, we, we, like I talked about, we have, you know, certified organic and pasture raised varieties, but like the entry, the entry, the original distal Turkey, the, the Turkey that made the, made the company <laughs> who the company is, is our just no antibiotics ever distal bird. Um, and with a no antibiotic ever program, right, um, the health and, and especially turkeys, like the health of the flock is so important. Um, and, you know, if you have if you have a whole flock and, and they get sick, it's really hard to manage because they're in this kind of flock mentality. So there's a there's there's a variety of things before the birds ever hit the ever hit the ground, um, you know, that we do that's different. And one of those, like you're talking about, is this probiotic solution. And so we actually use, it's a stabilized um, industry probiotics. And again, Jason really championed this technology. So instead of cleaning with chemicals um, and trying to, you know, bleach our way out of um, a bacteria issue, we, I'm, and I'm really bringing this like back to brass tacks here and, and kind of dumbing down the language. So this is not technical. This is now high, you've entered Heidi language territory. Um, we basically, uh, we use an external probiotic that, that um, outcompetes, right? So you have all of the good bacteria eating the bad bacteria. You're creating a competitive environment for the bacteria um, so that the good wins. With chemicals, right? When you put, you know, kills 99.9% .9 of germs, or whatever it is, well, those chemicals and those, those cleaning solutions are cleaning or killing, you know, everything on the surface. And when you just keep, you know, putting chemicals on a surface, you're creating a biofilm. And pretty soon those become ineffective at truly regulating and managing the bacteria. There's bacteria in everything and everywhere. So the best approach that we have found, um, in our farming is really to let nature, um, you know, natural and nature do their thing. And probiotics, a stabilized probiotic, um, truly helps with that. And so it's just creating a really good, healthy, you know, healthy microbial environment for the birds to, to live in and um, enjoy. Well, Heidi, it has been certainly interesting hearing about your operation and, you know, viewing your website and hearing about the practices that you guys are doing. Where can our listeners find you guys on the web or on social media so they can follow along and learn more about the diesel difference? Yeah, so distalfamilyranch.com is our website. Um, we have Instagram and Facebook, um, you know, Twitter, I believe, um, that you can kind of follow along. I encourage you guys to do so. There's so much fun stuff. I mean, of course, we have like, you know, your base hits as far as recipes go um, and the ways to use the product. But it's also really fun because like you get to kind of get a glimpse into the family and just into, um, yeah, what, what we, you know, are farming, what we're doing on the ranch in and out. We also have an awesome newsletter. So you can go to the website and sign up for our e-newsletter. And that's a great way to, um, to stay, stay connected. Our products are found in most of your natural and organic independent grocers. So if you have like a local co-op, 
um, or your, you know, kind of local natural grocers, Whole Foods has um, a lot of our products depending upon where you're located. But we also have an online store um, that you can buy most of our products online direct from our website. So that's another great avenue as well. Well, again, Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. We're, we're, we're excited to be here. Appreciate the time. Thanks again to Heidi for giving us a look inside her turkey farming operation. And with Monday being hashtag National Farmers Day, it's always great to have a farmer on the podcast, especially one who is a turkey producer. Absolutely. Very exciting uh, to talk about that. National Farmers Day is coming right up. We'll talk about that on Monday's podcast and more. Uh, What do you say, Ashton? Should we let the people go? Let's let them go.